0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post.
2: Uh, Hey, it's Dave Ferentz from The Post. Have you got a second?
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 26th. Today, the urgent message of a new rap album phoned in from jail, and a brief history of germ theory.
3: My name is Chris Richards. I'm the pop music critic here at the Washington Post.
1: Jeez.
4: I will be wilding out chopsticks, mopsticks, all on my mama couch, babe. With the apes, I been strangling snakes. I'm about to bat mobile bill on Bruce Wayne and some masons all mud.
3: Jacob the Ruler is a rapper from South Central Los Angeles. I'm a Daryl ruler. <laughs> My real name is Daryl Droller. He is an incredible stylist who can rap in these highly calculated insults, but he has a way of making them sound just whimsical and effortless.
5: Most rappers be yelling and doing all that. I don't yell. I always at the same tone. I try to be as calm as possible.
3: He's one of the most exciting innovators in rap music today. I think.
1: Who do you think that you sound like? I
5: don't sound like nobody. <laughs> I sound like me. Not a lot of people who sound like me,
3: though. (laughs) You can already hear his influence in all kinds of rappers across California and beyond. But he's also working in a few different California rap traditions. He's inventive, like E-40. He's flamboyant, like Sugar Free. He has DJ Quick's sense of humor. He has Snoop Dogg's sense of ease. And he has the charisma of someone like Mac Dre, another California rapper who recorded an album over a prison phone back in the 90s.
1: Where are you right now? I'm in Maine Central Jail, downtown Los Angeles.
3: He's been incarcerated for many, many months and has kind of taken his career into his own hands from behind bars recording this new album called Thank You for Using GTL.
4: It's 17, like it's graduation. The of me is only in your imagination. I got marks on my Valentino.
3: It's named mark. after a telecom service, GTL, that allows inmates at Men's Central Jail in Los Angeles to make phone calls to their friends and family.
1: Thank you for using GTL. So, just to be clear, I mean, this entire album was recorded over a
3: jail phone. Yeah, that's right. His producer, Jug, is on the other line.
6: I'm Jug. I'm a producer. I go by Jug Season.
3: And couches Draco's really detailed, intricate rhymes over these sort of spare, cool beats. And it sounds incredible in concept and in execution.
5: We
6: did the bulk of the tape in 36 hours.
5: Uh, I guess you say two days, but it really was one day, because one day we were just on doing it for like 10 hours.
6: I had a janky little setup. I had my computer on top of a cereal box, <laughs> and like I had the Beats Pill plugged into the computer, and the Beats Pill allowed him to hear the beat, and then I had the phone plugged straight into the computer so
5: he could record in. Doing a song is the easy part. It's to making sure everything on. This call is being recorded. Making it on beat. That's the hard part. And by it being on a jail phone, sometimes it don't pick up certain stuff. And it'd be
6: like, your call is being recorded. So I'd be like, damn, we got we to gotta record that part over.
1: <laughs> Were you worried about, like, the audio quality and the fact that, you know, it sounds like a phone call, right? Like it's grainy and sometimes you can't hear him completely.
6: No, nah, not at all. I wasn't worried about that at all. I was like, man, that, that adds to the whole situation. It just gives it a feel. Like,
1: What do you want people to feel when they listen to this?
6: I want them to feel like there's an injustice going on. And I feel like people should know what's going on. Because the whole reason why he's in jail is because he's
5: rapping. They were trying to use my music against me and try to silence me. Everything is not real. It's just
1: rap. So why is Draco in jail right now?
3: So Draco the ruler's trip through the criminal justice system has been complicated. And here's the story. A man was shot and killed at a party in Carson, California in 2016, a party that Draco was at. Draco was arrested in January 2017. And then at trial, state prosecutors presented Draco's lyrics and his music videos as evidence. Trying to link shell casings that were found at the scene of the crime with guns that were seen in one of Draco's music videos for the song Chunky Monkey. So essentially using fictional material as evidence in a courtroom.
1: So the prosecutors were making the case that, okay, we have these shell casings from the shooting. We know what type of gun it came from and... That same type of gun was present in this music video. That
3: is correct. There was no connection from what I understand from the actual gun to the actual shell casing. It was just that these are the kinds of shell casings that come from these kinds of weapons, which are incredibly common. It's like saying, you know, you saw a Honda Civic driving by. Therefore, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Right?
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That, if, that if I ran into someone with a Honda Civic, then it must have been the same Honda Civic.
3: Exactly. The jury did not go for that. So nearly a year ago, in July of 2019, Draco was acquitted of murder and attempted murder, but they were hung on charges of shooting from a motor vehicle and criminal gang conspiracy. So the district attorney refiled those two charges in September of last year, and Draco is still awaiting a new trial. And this is, of course, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to sweep through the American prison system, and Draco is incarcerated to this day, waiting for this next trial.
1: So he's been in jail this entire time but has not been found guilty of any
3: of these charges. Correct, acquitted of murder and attempted murder. The jury was hung on the other two counts.
1: So this idea that prosecutors could just use his lyrics and his music video as evidence in this trial, is that like is that even legal? Is that is there any precedent for that?
3: It's incredibly alarming this idea that, you know, fictional material can be brought into the courtroom to maybe impugn a defendant's character. We would never expect James Gandolfini to go on trial for the crimes that Tony Soprano committed on a television screen.
5: People take rap so seriously and literally. It's like, oh, if you said it in a rap, then that's what type of person you are. But they don't do this with no other genre of music.
3: When else is this happening? It's not happening to heavy metal artists. It's not happening to a punk band. It's not happening to a jazz quartet. Why is a rap lyric or what transpires in a rap video, how could it even be introduced in a court of law?
4: Everything is not real. Like, yeah, don't bother for person, for
3: real. Fictional is the last song on this album.
4: Have you been where I've been? Talking to yourself, cause you do really got no friends. Nobody ever seen me, cause it's 10 in the bench. I don't take pills, cause I win when I win. He's,
3: I love it because it kind of breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, which you don't really hear in rap music so often, because so much of it is about that play between what's real and what isn't, and where the truth lies in the space between person and persona. But for fictional, Draco just sort of drops that altogether and addresses the audience straight up. And the hook is...
4: It might sound well, but it's fictional. I love them imagination gets to you. Fictional.
3: And I think it's like, he almost sounds like embarrassed that he has to spell it out for people who can't distinguish between the two. <laughs> you know, who can't discern the difference for themselves. But, you know, it's sort of like a let there be no mistake here that my music comes from a place of the imagination. It's
4: fictional.
1: What I love about this song and the album in general is that it kind of serves as a really clever rhetorical device. Like, Draco is rapping about these, like, fictional crimes that he says that he's done, but he can't have done them because he's actually been incarcerated. So it is physically impossible for those things that he is rapping about to actually be true.
5: Imagine if I would have made this tape before I was charged with all these charges. And they would have been like, oh, yeah, man, he did it for sure. So I was like, you know what, I should just... Just write a crazy-ass song, and then it's just like, you know what? i to find out it's not real. It might sound like the craziest stuff in the world, but there's no way humanly possible I could do any of these things because I've been in jail for 30 months.
4: I'm not going to shoot nobody on camera. If I say something in a rap, it's not a real. My, my mind is just, I have a lot of imagination. It's fiction. So I don't want my words misinterpreted or any of that misconstrued. If you're going to use my music against me, I ask that you use it the same way that you would...
0: This call is being recorded.
4: Country music, punk rock, metal, um, jazz, whatever,
5: blues,
4: whatever. Treat rap the same way that you're going to treat any other genre. You're not going to hold Denzel Washington accountable for his role in training day. So don't do the same thing with my music.
1: Why do you think that people don't see rap the same way as they see something like, like you mentioned, like a movie, right? That like, that they don't see that this is just art and art is often fictional.
5: To me, it's racist to me because it's like, okay, like I'm going to say 80, percent of the people who rap are black. So like, if you just put this and try to picture it's like, okay, well, he's black. He's talking about all this stuff. He's probably really doing that like. It's not even like that. Mm -hmm. You'll you'll meet these people in person and be like, no, this isn't real. But when you hear it on songs and stuff, I guess it sounds real. I don't know, man. I really don't know.
1: I also feel like rap is a... A type of music that people sometimes unfairly think of as purely autobiographical or that the only way that people can think of interesting ways to talk about big ideas is like through mining their own lives. That it's this assumption that talented rappers can't like live in a world of imagination the way that talented writers and and other talented musicians and other genres can live in a world that is not real.
3: You're exactly right. Why isn't a rapper entitled to have an imagination? It makes no sense. Part of the confusion, I think, just comes down to people not being literate in the art form itself and understanding that just because lyrics aren't entirely factual doesn't mean they don't convey some kind of human truth. What a rapper is talking about doesn't need to be taken literally for it to communicate something that is, in fact, true, true to the human spirit, true to the state of the nation, true to the condition of our society. Like, he has a right to an imagination In the United States of America, blackness is policed, you know, and if we're going to allow rap songs to be introduced as evidence in criminal trials, then that's the policing of the black imagination, you know, and it's entirely unfair and to me, insane.
4: Million followers, none of them can't help Tell them jump up off the screen, I'm playing Elvis. All headshots, but he felt it in his pelvis. You roof it to the streets, social
5: media, can't help
3: probably you know my favorite song on the entire project is called social media can't help you uh, and it's this idea that you know you might present yourself in one way in the social media sphere but in reality you're something different and draco is saying this from the perspective of a rapper who's presenting himself one way in his music in reality is something different so the hook is amazing it's like
4: a million followers and none of them can't help you tell them up about the screen i'm playing elvis
3: You know, what is reality? Like, you act one way on social media, but are you that way? And for real, I act this one way in a song, what's real? And it just becomes this sort of, like, incredible house of mirrors about what is real and what isn't. Draco has this incredible way of rapping in this sort of, like, whispered, casual sneer, if you will. (laughs) I mean, he, he specializes in insults but he delivers them in this incredible way that it's almost like under the breath, like he's sharing a secret with you. Think about a phone call and how intimate a phone call is. You know, it's, it's you kind of whispering into the receiver and having the person on the other line talk back directly into your ear. So I think it's a, it's a really wonderful aesthetic match. You know, coincidentally, the fact that he can get on the telephone and make it sound so natural, it speaks to the kind of intimacy of his delivery.
6: A lot of people don't hear that gritty, voice on the other side because they don't have homies that's in jail they don't tap in with people that's in jail and they don't know what it's like to be in jail so it gives people more of an insight they kind of can connect with him in his current situation
1: I think it's so interesting, like the audio quality throughout the album, right? That, That you would think that that is the biggest impediment to actually putting out something that reaches people, right? That it's kind of grainy and it's clearly phone tape. But I think it creates this simultaneous, like distance because you can't forget where he is and you can't forget how it is that he is talking to you and why it is that he is talking to you like through this phone but also this intimacy of feeling like you are having a one-on-one conversation that this isn't a thing that is recorded anonymously in a studio that will inevitably reach the masses like this is him calling you up to share something with you
3: That's such a beautiful way of putting it I agree with you completely and this idea that you're not allowed to forget how you're being reached you know the fact that he is incarcerated that's such a beautiful poetic thing and I think it really speaks to like the, the power of the record because he's gonna try to convince you otherwise that he's this incredible rapper but the actual sonics of the recording they're not gonna let you forget you know the the, the predicament that he's in and one, and one that we're all accountable for I mean the criminal justice system answers to the American people so I hope that this record gets out and people continue to think hard about how Reforms need to be made so things like this don't happen in the future.
5: I'm not the only person that they're doing this to, but you know, I'm the person that they're doing this to that has a voice.
0: This call is being recorded.
3: And, um, you know, I would hope that, you know, the next album doesn't have to be made over a telephone.
1: Chris Richards is a music critic for The Post. Prosecutors in California are moving ahead with the case against Draco. The remaining charges against him are shooting from a motor vehicle and criminal gang conspiracy. Jury selection has started and the retrial is expected to begin next month.
0: Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash
1: resource. Can, can you describe for me what the world looked like before people? knew about germs, like how they did basic things that now would seem pretty weird to us.
2: Sure. I mean, I happen to be really fascinated in the whole way that people used to board together or room together.
1: And and when you say board together, like that, they would be like sleeping in the same bed
2: lodged together. They would share a bed together.
1: That's Freddie Kunkel, reporter for The Post
2: and not to get too literary about this, but, you know, at the beginning of Moby Dick, You going whaling?
1: That is my intention.
2: There are those fabulous scenes where Ishmael shares a room at the Spouter Inn with Queequeg. You'll be wanting a room tonight. You ain't no objection to sharing the Harpeneer's bed with him, have you? And, you know, it, it just wasn't unusual that people you would board for the night and you would find yourself with some stranger, in this case, an exotically tattooed character from the South Pacific who happens to be a harpooner on a whale boat.
1: Which is the harpooner I'm to sleep with tonight?
2: Oh, he ain't among them. And I I remember the first time I read that, that seemed so alien to me. But it turns out that was quite common in the 19th century until the discovery of germs. Suddenly, it wasn't a good idea to climb into a a bed with a stranger.
1: Freddie has been talking to historians to find all these examples of how life was different before people understood how diseases spread.
2: When toothbrushes came out, people would buy a toothbrush or two for the family, and so the children might share it. It also wasn't uncommon to go to a city fountain and find... That there was a tin cup there for everyone in the public to share and use and drink from in the same fountain.
1: All of that changed at the beginning of the 20th century because of a new concept called germ theory. So it's essentially the idea
0: that communicable diseases are conveyed from person to person through the agency of these invisible things.
1: That's Nancy Toms. She's a historian at Stony Brook University.
0: So I wrote The Gospel of Germs, Men, Women, and the Microbe in American Life. The question I was trying to answer was how people's lives changed or they thought they needed to change once they believed
1: in the existence of germs. And the answer to that question feels very relevant right now, at a time when a lot of us are becoming acutely reacquainted with fears about germs— because in the early 20th century, these new fears changed so much about not just medicine and food preparation, but how people looked and thought and interacted with each other. It's so
0: transformative. So many changes in American life, from bodily hygiene to dress to the furnishing of houses, to the the kind of seating they used in the subway.
2: Suddenly, wicker became really popular because wicker was thought to be germ-resistant and cleaner than fabric, and so it mm-hmm. began to appear as the seats in public transports.
0: When you mentally picture a high Victorian house with all the plush and the fabric, By the 1920s, all that stuff is gone. The plush and the curtains are identified as germ catchers.
2: People started to pass laws against spitting in public. And suddenly, the preference for beards began to change.
0: These long beards that showed you were a person of importance, they had to go. Um, So there were public health requests that men uh, reduce the size of their whiskers.
2: And so by some people's thinking, the idea of sort of the clean shaven American male, it actually has its roots in some ways with this idea of trying to prevent germs from being carried around by people.
0: For women, the, the big change I found was the skirt length
2: dresses in particular began to be questioned because they would sop up nastiness from public sidewalks and so forth
0: we're taught in our our history classes that those skirts just went up for those flappers for you know because they wanted to show off their legs and have a good time Uh uh-uh it was get that skirt off the ground and uh well the legs were part of it, let's be honest. Um, but it was also get rid of that skirt trailing in the dirt where all the germs are.
2: So this is when people began to think about how to change their behavior, how to change the articles around them, that they would prevent the transmission of this disease. So out went sleeping together, for example. As
0: boarding houses kind of morphed into hotels, places that People with more money and higher expectations wanted to inhabit. You had to reassure the person staying in the hotel that a someone with a deadly disease had not slept in that bed the night before, so hotels developed all of these um, practices. Of cleaning rooms in between visitors in a way that was meant to communicate, we have disinfected this space.
2: This is where the habit comes from, where you fold the sheet down over the blanket. Mm. Because while a blanket might be recycled, they could change the sheet and that would protect you from some of those germs.
0: Just astonishing uh, kinds of rituals in hotel life that I suspect got handed on and persisted even when their relationship to this older fear of disease was lost.
1: And these changes that happened because people started learning about germs, how did that translate into changes in terms of how people interacted with each other?
2: So suddenly, things like the Wife's Manual in the late 1880s would start to tell parents, keep in mind that every touch could be Teeming with germs. You should not kiss your child. You shouldn't let anybody else kiss your child. Uh, You should be very, very careful about how you prepared your food in the kitchen. Your kitchen should be spotless. Everything should be boiled and cooked, maybe even overcooked. There was almost a sort of horror involved, like a huge weight that parents, and again, particularly mothers, were carrying around that, like, God forbid, you should screw up and not boil the milk properly. You could kill your own kid.
0: In my historical research, I found an oral history with a mother who felt that if she hadn't taken her daughter to see a movie, that she wouldn't have caught whatever killed her, Um, that she'd been a bad mother.
1: It feels like in a world where we already do so much of like ascribing blame to women for being bad mothers or making them feel guilty about their decisions around parenthood, that this was just a way of exacerbating that or like finding a new angle of that.
0: absolutely. And it's also heartbreaking because these rules of how to protect your child were presented as something everyone should follow. But depending on on your family circumstances, you couldn't do it. I mean, if if you were a large family living in one room, and there was no uh, reliable running water in, how did you keep your house clean? How did you care for your child in this really very precise germ conscious fashion? It was extremely difficult.
1: And so how did that translate into the experience of what it was like to be a child during this era when people were first wrapping their head around germs and starting to behave differently because of their awareness of germs?
2: So I think particularly for a whole generation of people, and maybe even a couple generations of people, they grew up with parents who basically thought their duty toward their child was to make sure they were well fed maybe got some fresh air but were not really handled touched and this is exactly in contradiction to what infants in particular but people really need, which is human contact, human touch. We're extremely attuned to how we're interacting with each other, particularly physically.
0: In one of my talks after I wrote the book, a woman came up to me afterwards and said, you helped me understand why my mother was so physically distant. I knew she loved me. But she was so reticent about showing physical affection, and she was really terrified of infectious diseases. And I mean, that was one of the really sad parts of my research was to see how this messed up the tactile relationship between adults and children.
1: It seems like this whole period of discovering germs for the first time, it left this kind of invisible legacy. Like there were so many things that changed in terms of how we dress and how we cook and clean and how do how we interact with our families and view women and view mothers, and so much of it goes back to this period of paranoia about germs, even though we've totally forgotten that that was the root of these big societal changes. So I wonder if you think that, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 years from now after coronavirus is all over, that there will be things that changed fundamentally about our society that we will have forgotten were because of coronavirus.
2: I... I wonder the same thing. For example, I wonder if the handshake will survive the pandemic. Hmm. Will people routinely go up and, you know, shake hands after all of this?
1: Or the hug or the cheek kiss.
2: All of those. Yeah, I I wonder about that. I mean, I think almost for certain casual and Americans tend to be very casual, sort of touchy, um, getting close. I I don't know that that make that could change in the future.
0: What I see now is, I think, a greater degree of um, feeling that if I just hunker down in my home, I can be safe. But it then makes going outside that much more dangerous. Usually pandemics escalate a dynamic that was already in play and intensifies it. So I really wonder what's going to happen, how we approach being in the same room with each other, being in in actual rooms instead of Zoom rooms.
1: Freddie Kunkel is a reporter for The Post. Nancy Toms is a professor of history at Stony Brook University. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Swarnowski, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with